Well, I want to invite you that you would open your Bible with me to the book of Genesis chapter 21, very appropriate chapter as we prepare our hearts for communion. Genesis 21, as you turn there, I do want to invite you again tomorrow night to our open house. It's going to be an incredible time of really seeing what the Lord is doing in the lives of these students, not simply as students, but also as disciples of Jesus, as followers of Christ. And that we would all really be able to know what's taking place and pray for them, uh, because the youth of this generation need our prayers. Amen? And they're actually here with us tonight. They join us for communion. So uh, can we welcome them, the high school and the youth that are here with us tonight? So remember to pray for them. Pray for the youth of the time today. Pray for the high schoolers, those in junior high. And we even have uh, the elementary and preschool that will be doing open house as well, our entire school. So make sure you're here for that and are blessed to be a part of that. Well, we're in Genesis chapter 21, and this is a great chapter. This is the chapter that everyone's been waiting for for the last few chapters. In fact, there are those times in our lives that God has us on that waiting room. And we, we want to know, Lord, are we next? When are they going to call our name? Lord, when is your promise finally going to arrive? Lord, when are you going to do that which you said you would do? You promised it maybe a year ago or two years ago, or I've been waiting on your timing. Well, Genesis chapter 21 is the place where God performs his promises. In fact, we titled the message of tonight, The Everlasting God. Would you note that tonight for the message? The Everlasting God, because God keeps his promises. And I want you to remember that tonight as we go there to Genesis 21, that God keeps his promises. Specifically here, we see God's promises fulfilled in the life of Abraham and Sarah. And we know as we're looking at their lives that life as a Christian is a balance of joy, of sorrow, of problems, and of blessings. It isn't always going to be joys or victory. We're going to face some defeats, some trials, some tests. But we have to learn to accept whatever God gives us and walk by faith. Today, if you're going through a test, I want you to know that accept whatever God is giving you and walk by faith. Now, that's not always the easy thing to do. But as we trust God, we accept what He gives us and we trust Him as we walk by faith. What has happened there? In Genesis chapter 20, Abraham again lied. He fell where he had already fallen once. And he lied that Sarah was his sister, and, and that she wasn't his wife. And here in chapter 21, they have a new beginning after lying, after walking in fear. And he's teaching us here, the Lord, through his word, that you too can have a new beginning because of his grace. Today we've come to the table of communion because there we're reminded that we all received a new beginning by the grace of God at the cross of Jesus Christ. That even after that, after doubting, after walking in fear, after lying, after failing where they failed before once, even after that, God still blesses them. Think about that in your life. Even after you failed where you had already failed once, God still blesses you because he is so full of grace. 
And what do we learn about God's discipline? Is that the purpose of discipline is always restoration. And the purpose of restoration is always blessing. So here you see the blessing. The purpose of discipline is restoration. The purpose of restoration is blessing. And here is the blessing. Now, one of the things that we have to know as we look to chapter 21 is that God is in control of all of these events. As you look at the life of Abraham, it is the invisible hand of God. As you look at your life right now, maybe the different events that are taking place in your life, set of circumstances that cannot be explained, or the circumstances that you, you don't know how, to, how you're going to go through, notice it's the invisible hand of God in every event. And here we see that the chief purpose of God's Word, of the Word of God, is so that we would know, so that we would now have the revelation of the God of the Word. Well, is this about Abraham? Is this about Sarah? No, it's about God. And we're going to learn the character of God so that we have a a God-centered orientation. That we're not lost, we're not confused in our situation, that God is the focus. What happens when God is not the focus? You begin to sink. When God's not the focus, you become discouraged. When God's not the focus, you become afraid. You begin to walk backwards instead of forward. Notice this, everything revolves around God. From Genesis to Revelation, He should be the focus. We should have a God-centered orientation. Notice what happens here. This is God working in all of the events. It says, And the Lord visited Sarah as He had said, and the Lord did for Sarah as He had spoken. Let's pray. Lord, we ask that tonight You would give us that God-centered orientation. That we would know that everything revolves around You. That You are the center of of all the events that are taking place, that you're in control, that it's the the invisible hand, the outstretched arm of Almighty God. So let us look to you today, rejoicing that you are the everlasting God, that you don't faint and you don't grow weary. In Jesus' name and together we said, Amen. Now notice, this is God at work the everlasting god and notice in verse one what does god's word tell us and the lord visited sarah as he had said and the lord did for sarah as he had spoken three times here you see the lord being referenced as to what the lord did the lord's visitation the lord did what the lord had said and i invite you to Underline that, circle that, maybe highlight that in your Bible where it says, the Lord visited Sarah and the Lord did as He had spoken. Because here you see the Lord, Yahweh, that's the the covenant name of God, the Hebrew name of God, that He is the self-existent One, God Himself. What does He do? He sees Sarah. He visits Sarah and He keeps His Word here. He fulfills His Word. He fulfills His promises, His promises never fail. Remember that today. His promises never fail. He is the promise keeper. He never leaves a promise unfulfilled. If He's giving you a promise, if He's giving you confirmation, you can take Him at His word. 
And this is what happens is that he sees Sarah, God visits Sarah, and he does, notice, God does for Sarah exactly what God had said he would do. And notice here in verse 1 of chapter 21 of Genesis, this is 25 years later after living in the land of Canaan. Now, some of us oftentimes say, well, I've been waiting for three months. Lord, where's the promise? And when you think 25 years, you become discouraged. But the Lord's timing is perfect. This is 25 years of waiting for the fulfillment of God's promise here. This is Abraham's faith being rewarded. Abraham having full confidence in God's word that what God had promised God would perform. In fact, in the book of Romans chapter 4, it speaks of Abraham's faith. It would say this in Romans 4, 17, as it is written, I have made you the father of many nations, speaking of Abraham. In the presence of him who he believed, God who gives life to the dead and calls those things which do not exist as though they did. Think about who God is. He will call something to exist as if it did, does when it didn't who contrary to hope, in hope believed that he became the father of many nations according to what was spoken. So shall your descendants be. And not being weak in faith, he did not consider his own body already being dead since he was about 100 years old and the deadness of Sarah's womb. He did not waver at the promises of God through unbelief, but he was strengthened in faith. And notice what happens when you don't waver, when you're strengthened in faith, giving God the glory. Being fully convinced that what he had promised, he was able to perform. Now, I want to draw your attention to those verses in Romans chapter 4 that you would know this. Don't waver at the promises of God. Do not doubt God's promises for your life. Strengthen yourself in faith, giving God all of the glory being fully convinced that he's able. How many of us here believe tonight that God is able? Amen? God is able. You know what that means? That he has the power to perform his promises in your life. In fact, even Sarah, as she doubted, as she laughed, she later then strengthened herself in faith as well. And she's mentioned in Hebrews chapter 11, verse 11, in the hall of faith. By faith, Sarah also received strength to conceive a seed. And she bore a child when she was past the age because he judged him faithful who had promised. How did this happen? By faith. How was it and why was it that God fulfilled his promises? It wasn't because Abraham was perfect in obedience, but it was because God was perfect in his faithfulness. Because God is faithful to his word. There's one thing that you can trust is that God is faithful to His Word. He has unconditional promises. God would accomplish this in the life of Abraham, in the life of Sarah, not based off of what Abraham did, but based off who God is. Sometimes we think, well, I have to do these things for God to perform His promises in my life. Notice, these promises were unconditional promises. They had no condition. These weren't based off of anything that Abraham would do. These, was, these were based on the character and the nature of God. What do we learn here in verse 1? God's delays are not God's denials. 
Maybe right now he's saying, yes, I'm going to answer that prayer. Yes, I'm going to bless you with that desire. But notice, it's not the timing yet. God will not be rushed. He will accomplish His purposes in His own timing. We can't rush God. We can't rush God's process or God's timing. We, we need to trust God that He has, as Ecclesiastes chapter 3, verse 11 would say, He has made everything beautiful in its time. And if we want to be in God's perfect time, we want to say, Lord, do the work, the beautiful work in my life. Then notice, it's only beautiful in His time. Not in our time. We try to say, well, we want it beautiful right now. Well, the Lord is saying, I have made it beautiful in His own time. God has set all the events in order from eternity's past. And notice what happens here in verse 2. It says this, For Sarah conceived and bore Abraham a son in his old age. At the set time. Would you take note of those words there? They're important for us to remember at the set time. What do we learn here in verse 1 and 2? That it is God who gives life. He is the one that gave life. And she was pregnant. She gave birth to a son in her old age. And it was at the set time or at just the time that God had said. In fact, it would describe it this way, of which God had spoken to him. When was it that this son was born? It was done. It was, he was born at the time that God had spoken, one year from when God had given them the promise again, reminding us to take him at his word. Right now, if God has spoken to you, he's given you confirmation, take him at his word. Just as God has said, he will do. Now notice what, what happens here in verse 2 is that it's not about only that God tells them what he would do. He also tells them when he would do it. Did you see that there in verse 2? At the set time of which God had said. God not only tells us what he's going to do, oftentimes through his word he tells us when he is going to do it. At the right time. And notice here, this is God's schedule. This is not man's schedule. This is not man's calendar. This is not Abraham's or Sarah's preferred time to have a child. This is God's perfect will. And at God's perfect will, at God's perfect timing, notice this happens. Sometimes we become very impatient waiting for God to work. But like Abraham, like Sarah, we need to learn to be strong in faith and give him the glory. God's precision, God's providence in his timing. It's all perfect even in your own life. And you would ask yourself right now, well, I'm also waiting for God to answer my prayer. And God will answer your prayer. Notice, at the set time, he'll answer that prayer. At the set time, you'll find that spouse. At the set time, you'll have the job. At the set time, you'll also have a child that you've been waiting on. At the set time, you'll receive the healing that you've been asking for. Notice, it's all in God's timing, in God's perfect will. But we need to trust this timing. Because if we're not trusting the Lord's timing, we want things in our own timing, notice, we'll become very frustrated and disappointed. But notice, as Abraham and Sarah taught us what it means to walk by faith, you know what walking by faith means? Is you trust in God's timing at the set time. It is God who gives life. But verse 3, God also gives commands. Notice verse 3, And Abraham called the name of his son who was born to him, whom Sarah 
bore to him Isaac. Was that not the name that God said that he would name him? And what does Isaac mean? It means laughter. This is the name that God had given him. And not only that, but then Abraham circumcised his son Isaac when he was eight days old as God had commanded him. God gives life, but also God gives commands. On the eighth day, what does he do? With the answer of prayer, which is the blessing of a son, he has the right command, and now he has the right response. He responds with dependence by saying, Lord, we will also circumcise our son, dedicate him over to you as you have said. And the answer of prayer now is now given over back to the Lord in consecration. Notice what happens here. And you see here that in verse 3, it's all done as God had commanded. Verse 4 again, as God had commanded. Now, do you know that God has the right to command anything he wants in your life? He has the right to command in any or every area of your life. And here, as, as God had commanded to Abraham, so he did. But notice verse 5 as it continues. Now, Abraham was 100 years old when his son Isaac was born to him. Think about that. It's never too late to have kids. But what's the lesson there? That nothing is impossible for God. We think, well, I'm past that age or I'm past that season. Or God, if he would have done it, he would have done it already. Well, nothing is impossible for God. That may have happened in your timing at a different time, but it's going to happen in God's timing so that he receives all the glory. And you know why it happened when he was 100 years old? So there would be no possible explanation, but the only explanation would be that it was the hand of God. That that was the only answer. Now notice what happens. And Sarah said, God has made me laugh. And all who hear will laugh with me. You know what she said? God has brought me laughter. All who hear will laugh with me. When they hear that I have had a son, they're going to laugh or rejoice with me. Notice here as she continues, she also said, who would have said to Abraham that Sarah would nurse children for I have borne him a son in his old age? Who would have thought, she said, that, that I would give birth to a son for my husband? He has brought laughter. He has brought joy to me. But it's also a remembrance of her initial response when she heard the angel of the Lord now speaking to Abraham in regards to them having a son. And she's like, who would have thought in my old age? But you know what she's remembering when it comes to God's timing? As Genesis 18, 14, what the Lord already had told them is anything too hard for the Lord. Right now, maybe you're waiting for an answer to your prayer. Remind yourself that in Genesis 18, 14, is anything too hard for the Lord? This wasn't hard for the Lord in their lives. This was the perfect timing. We sometimes try to give up and say, well, you know what, I'm, I'm giving up on that prayer. Or I can't hold on anymore in regards to this trial or this test. But nothing is too hard for the Lord. And the Lord had reminding them, is there anything too hard for the Lord? You know what happens here is that Abraham rejoices. He finally has the son, the promise, the performance of the promise that God had given him. And it says here in verse 8, So the child grew and was weaned. And Abraham made a great feast 
on the same day that Isaac was weaned. You find the family joy, but then it turns into family sorrow because on the same day that he was weaned, there was a great feast and celebration for the occasion. But something happens at that celebration. You think about it, there's a celebration for Isaac. He has been weaned, but you always have that person at the party that wants to ruin the party, right? You always have that person at the celebration that, does, that is not happy about what's happening. <laughs> and here you had someone, and his name was Ishmael. And notice what happened here in verse 9. And Sarah saw the son of Hagar. Wait, who was Hagar? The servant of Sarah, who Sarah gave to Abraham as she, as she was impatient. And she said, go and have a son here with my servant. They had a son. His name is Ishmael, representing the work of the flesh, not waiting on the Lord. It's, it's representation of of the works of the flesh, wanting to do things in our own way or by our own power. But Sarah saw Ishmael. You know what Ishmael was, was doing here? It, it tells us here that Ishmael was scoffing, verse 9. He was laughing at Isaac. He was mocking him. Isn't that the same thing that the flesh does? It mocks against the Spirit? That, that the flesh would constantly oppose in fact, what, what Ishmael is doing, he's making fun of Isaac. He's saying, look at what he's doing. Look at what they're doing. He, he's, he's ridiculing him. He's jealous. He, he maybe has resentment or there's hostility against the plan of God on Isaac's life. That's exactly what the works of the flesh are evident in. When the God is doing a work of the Spirit, you know what the, those that are walking in the flesh will do? Those that are walking in the flesh will speak against what God is doing in the Spirit. And they'll scoff, they'll laugh, they'll ridicule, they'll oppose, they'll try to make fun of. Oh, look what they're doing. They think they can do this for God. And you know why? Because they're walking in the flesh. Ishmael here, a representation of the flesh, is scoffing or opposing the plan of God in the Spirit. And notice Ishmael, what was he? He was circumcised. God had told Abraham, circumcise your son. And how clear illustration and picture we find there that you can be outwardly performing all the duties but inwardly not have a changed heart outwardly i look like i'm okay but inwardly my heart is not right i'm carnal that's what you learn from ishmael and hagar carnality that it's all a representation of the fruit of the work of the flesh Abraham wanting to have that son by force and Sarah wanting to do it and work it out in their own timing. So what does Sarah do in verse 10? She finds out that they are ridiculing, they're making fun of Isaac. And she says in verse 10, therefore she said to Abraham, cast out, circle those words, this bondwoman and her son, cast them out. For the son of this bondwoman shall not be heir with my son, namely with Isaac. She sees them laughing and she told Abraham, calls her husband and says, cast them out for he will not have an inheritance with my son. She has resentment already towards him. You know what Sarah is doing here? She's an unhappy wife now. And she says, I will not have it. The works of the flesh, I want you to know this, will not inherit spiritual things. The work of the flesh will not inherit spiritual things. The, the, the works of carnality 
will not inherit spiritual things. You can think you can force something. You can do things out of your own carnal ambition or, or, or out of your own fleshly desire, but they will not inherit spiritual things. And her attitude of saying, cast them out, that, that may seem a little harsh. You may think, well, you really? You're going to cast them out? But notice later on, God takes sides with Sarah. And you know what the lesson here is? Is that there is no room for that which is a work of the flesh. I want you to pay attention to that tonight. There is no room for that which is a work of the flesh. You need to cast it out. If it's carnality, if it's sin, if it's pride, whatever it would be as a work of the flesh, there is no room. You must cast it out. This is a hard lesson to learn when it comes to our sanctification, which means our holiness. That the old nature, the old works, the principles, the precepts that are represented by Ishmael here, by Hagar, those things must be dethroned in our life. They must be dispossessed in our lives. All of the worldliness, all of the carnality. As Paul would say in Romans 7, for I know in me that is in my flesh nothing good dwells. You know what's good about the flesh? I'll tell you, what's good about the flesh? Nothing. <laughs> That's exactly what Paul said. In fact, I like what John Phillips, the commentator, said about this. He would say this, sometimes, pay attention to this, it's necessary for God's people, if they're truly going to be in the will of God, and if they're really going to enjoy the fullness of His blessing, they must separate completely from those who might be a source of friction and carnality. Even though the separation will be difficult and will give others who don't understand spiritual issues involved an occasion to criticize and ridicule. There's going to be sometimes you're going to have to cut off the flesh and separate yourself from those people that are walking in carnality and in the flesh. And to other people that don't understand spiritual things, you know what they're going to say about you? They're going to criticize you and they're going to oppose you. Why would you do that? That's so harsh. Why would you separate that? Why would you cast them out? Why would you cut ties? Because when it comes to the flesh, there is no room, no matter how much attached you have become. I'll tell you this. There are some people here tonight that have become very attached to the things of the flesh. And tonight, you need to cast them out. We've become very attached to that old nature, to our old sinful desires. You know what happened here in verse 11? It says, and the matter was very displeasing in Abraham's sight because of his son. This made him upset because Ishmael was still his son. This was distressing upon him. In fact, this hurt him inside. You know what it explains to us? That it is painful. Oftentimes, to die to the flesh and to the world. It is, it is going to hurt oftentimes to say no. It's going to hurt, I'll tell you this, to let go. When it came to Abraham here, he, it was so hard for him to let go now. But I love him. He's Ishmael. You know what the Lord's going to tell him? It's time to let go now. Whatever is not of God has to go. No matter what type of attachment you have or you've become now entangled with. 
Whatever is not of God has to go. The Bible tells us, and put on the Lord Jesus Christ and, and, and make no provision for the flesh to fulfill its lusts. Make no room for the flesh. Cast out any work of the flesh. Now notice, after he did this, you know what happened in his life? He was no longer afraid of Abimelech. In chapter 20, he was afraid of Abimelech. Chapter 21, he cast off the works of the flesh. He stands up against Abimelech now. He lost the product of the flesh, and he gained the power of the Spirit. Now, now I want you to pay attention to that. When you lose the product of the flesh, you will gain the power of the Spirit. And notice the power of the Spirit is on different principles. It's not worldly, it's not carnal, but it's on spiritual principles. That you're saying, I'm not holding on to fleshly things any longer. I'm not holding on to those things that have entangled me, even though emotionally I'm so in love with them. Cast them out. I heard a story of a man that got saved at a revival meeting on a night meeting of a church, and he went home, and he was so excited that he accepted the Lord. And in fact, the next day he went back, but when he went home, he was so sad. And his wife said, what happened? He said, well, everyone now, for some reason, they're wearing red jerseys at the church. And she said, well, don't worry about that, honey. You know, I'll knit you something. She knit him a red jersey, and he was a bigger guy, and she, he put it on, and he went with his red jersey over to the church, and that night he came back, he was sad again. Well, everyone has big white letters on their jersey. And she says, well, you know what? I can't write or read, and neither can you, but I'll see what I can do. Give me your jersey. She gives him the jersey, and across the street, lo and behold, there's a man at a storefront, and he's painting letters on front of the storefront. So she decides, I'm going to copy whatever he's putting there. I'll put it on the jersey. And she puts it on the jersey. He goes back to the church. He comes back smiling better than ever. And she says, honey, finally you've done it. Everyone said I had the best jersey of them all. So smiling. You know what his jersey said? Under new management. This business is under new management. That's exactly how our lives should look. That our lives should read to the world now. We are under new management. It's under the management of the Holy Spirit. It's not under the management of the flesh any longer. We are under new management. The old business, the old now manager, you know what that's declared? They're declared bankrupt, the flesh now. And nothing of the flesh, nothing of that old business can be salvaged. We sometimes say, you know what? Well, the old business is bankrupt, but I want to salvage. I want to keep something. <laughs> I still want to have fun on the weekends. I still want to have fun on my days off. No, everything must be declared bankrupt. Nothing must be salvaged. Our lives, after we come to Christ, are not business as usual. If your life is the same, then I'll tell you this, you haven't truly surrendered to Christ. Our lives are not business as usual. We're under new management. We're under new ownership. It's the Holy Spirit. In fact, Paul uses this as he writes to the church in Galatia, this example of Hagar and Ishmael and Isaac, that, that we are no longer born of the flesh, we're born of the Spirit now. 
And he's displeased now. And notice what he's displeased. He's upset. It's almost like when God tells you, I need you to give that up, and then you become upset. And the Lord uses other people in your life and telling you, you know what, your wife or your husband or your children or someone at church, a pastor, a message, someone that gives you counseling, hey, give that up, and you're upset about it. But the Lord is saying, it's time to cast it off. God gives life. God gives commands. But notice number three, God gives direction. God gives direction. Notice verse 12, it says, but God said to Abraham. Have you ever been upset and then it's, God said something? <laughs> and you know what God says? And this is really, this verse is, is, is really important here because notice what he tells them, do not let it be displeasing in your sight. You know what he says? Don't be mad, Abraham. Why are you mad? In fact, because of the lad or because of the bondwoman. Don't be mad because of this. And here's really what really got him mad now. Because he says, whatever Sarah told you, listen to her voice. Now, you know what he's saying, what the Lord is saying here? And this is really the hardest test for Abraham thus far. He's saying, don't be mad. Listen to your wife. Do what your wife told you to do. Now, I know for, as a man, and maybe for many of you out there, the worst thing is when God's voice sounds like the voice of your wife. And she tells you to do something, and no, that's really not it. And then God says, don't be mad. Listen to your wife. That's exactly what he's learning to do, to listen to the counsel. Because God gives direction through confirmation here. He gives command, but he gives comfort again. And notice the confirmation there in verse 12 that he's teaching him here. Whatever Sarah has said to you, listen to her, for in Isaac your seed shall be called. What is he saying here? Here's the comfort. Your descendants will come from and will be counted by Isaac. Also, yet I will also make a nation of the son of the bondwoman because he is your seed. But notice, I will give you a generation out of also Ishmael because he's your son. This is God's grace as well. And what does he learn? He learns here to listen to the voice of God, as the Lord has said here, used his wife Sarah to tell him, cast off Ishmael and Hagar. Now, now some would say, you know what, whatever your wife says, you have to do it. <laughs> but notice what, what ha had to happen as well. He, he waited to hear from God. God said, I I'm going to give you the confirmation. Yes, do it. Cast off the flesh. I need you to do it. And you notice how he does it there in verse 14. It happens here. It says, so Abraham rose early in the morning. He didn't procrastinate. He didn't put it off. He rose early in the morning. In verse 14, he took now bread and, skin, and a skin of water, putting it on her shoulder, gave it to the boy and Hagar and sent her away. And then she departed and wandered in the wilderness of Beersheba. Took bread, took water, gave it to them, sent them away. Now, some people would say, well, why didn't he give them more if he was rich? Why didn't he give them more if he was healthy? Well, some people would believe that this would be an illustration of making no provision for the work of the flesh. Something practical that you can learn from it. But it is highly believed here in verse 14 that the only reason why he only gave them that, because he trusted God with them. 
Abraham had learned to trust God. And he said, all right, Lord, if this is what you're commanding me, then you will provide for them. He gives them bread, he gives them water, and he sends them away. I want you to know something there as we go to verse 14, is that we should not try to protect what God is trying to direct. Do not try to protect what God wants to direct. Don't try to protect, don't try to keep it. When God is saying it's time to move on, it's time to go, it's time to take steps forward. So what happens here? It says, they wandered aimlessly in the wilderness of Beersheba. They were in the wilderness. And notice what happens here in the wilderness. And the water and the skin was used up. And she placed the boy under one of the shrubs. She put him under the shade of a bush because they were dried up. They were empty. They had no water anymore. They're in the wilderness. And then she went and sat down across from at a distance of about a bow shot or a thousand yards for she said to herself, let me not see the death of the boy. So she sat opposite of him, lifted up her voice, and she wept. She was to think that it would be unbearable for her to see her son die. So she went about a hundred yards away from him. She lifted up her voice and started to cry. Why? Hopeless. In the wilderness. Sorrowful. Desperate. Dried up. Empty. Oftentimes, our lives look like that in the wilderness. Desperate, hopeless, dried up, empty. Think about that in your life, in the wilderness. Desperate, hopeless, dried up, and empty. You want to know what happens here in verse 17? And God heard the voice of the lad. What happened here? And God heard the voice of crying. We're so grateful that God hears you when you cry in moments in the wilderness, when you're hopeless, when you're empty, when you're crying, when you're desperate. God hears you when you're crying in the wilderness, no matter what situation you find yourself in. And notice what the Lord does in his faithfulness. Then the angel of God called to Hagar out of heaven and said to her, what ails you, Hagar? What's wrong, Hagar? Fear not, for God has heard the voice of the lad where he is. I want you to circle two things here. Fear not and where he is. Don't be afraid right now as you're in the wilderness. Don't be afraid if you're empty or you're desperate or you're hopeless that you have no answers or you have no way, you have no supply, you have no provision. Do not be afraid. God has heard the voice of your cry. You know what I love about this verse in verse 17? It says, where he is. God meets you right where you are. It doesn't matter where you are right now. You may find yourself in a situation where you're so desperate, God meets you right where you are. Whether it's in the wilderness, whether it's in the valley, whether it's in the mountaintop, God meets you where you are. He hears you and your cry in the wilderness. And whatever condition you find yourself in right now, He will hear your cry and meet you there. And not only that, but notice as it continues, it says, Arise, lift up the lad, and hold him with your hand, for I will make him a great nation. Now, stand up, get up, hold up your son, comfort the lad and the boy. I'm going to make him a great nation. He's going to have a big generation. He's going to have many sons and daughters. God gives life. 
God gives commands. God gives direction. But also God gives provision. And notice in verse 19, then God opened her eyes. Now, do you love this? I mean, go back tonight, home. Open up Genesis 21. And every time it says, then God. God said, God did, God opened. This is all about who? It's all about God. When you read your Bible, ask the Lord. Before you open the Bible, ask the Lord, what do you want to teach me about you? Because the more that you know about God, the more direction you'll find in your own life. God doesn't revolve around us. We revolve around God. And notice what happens. Then God opened her eyes and she saw a well of water. What did God do? He allowed her to see a well of water there. He gives provision. And notice what it says. And she went and filled the skin with water and gave it to the lad to drink. This is water. What is water represented as in the Bible? As life with spiritual significance, salvation, or deliverance. They saw water. And notice here in verse 20, so God was with the lad. God gives now comfort. He gives provision. In the wilderness, he hears your cry, but also God is there. And notice what happens to Ishmael here. And he dwelt in the wilderness, and he became an archer. And he dwelt in the wilderness of Param, and his mother took a wife for him from the land of Egypt. This is Ishmael here that was born from Hagar that Abraham took as the bondservant of Sarah, a product of the flesh, one who mocked at spiritual things, Isaac. Notice that, one who mocked at spiritual things, Isaac. He took the wilderness for his home, and then he took Egypt, the world, to his heart. You see the fight between Ishmael and Isaac. Why? Because the work of the flesh will always, notice the work of the flesh will always look as to how it can satisfy the pleasures and desires that it craves. And notice as it continues here, because you see the family testimony. Sometimes we think, well, we need to have a perfect family. Abraham didn't have a perfect family. You talk about a family that's blended, that's broken, that is messed up, that is upside down, everything that can possibly go wrong. Well, that's Abraham. And God chose the weakness of a man to show himself strong through. And notice what it says here. And it came to pass that at that time that Abimelech and Phicol, the commander of his army, spoke to Abraham saying, God is with you in all that you do. Now notice this, Abimelech returns with Phicol, the commander of his army. And I want you to know something, Abimelech is not simply a name, it's a title, which means my father is king. And they both recognize that God is with Abraham. They saw that God's hand is on Abraham. They, they see from a distance, they said, God is with you in all that you do. God is obviously helping you, Abraham, in everything you're doing. This is the type of testimony that he had. The only explanation for what was taking place in Abraham's life was that God was with him. It was the noticeable hand of God on his life. And then they recognized that the world should recognize God's hand is on that person. The people in your workplace, in your family, 
the unbelievers, they should say, it is God's hand on that person's life. You, there is no other way. <laughs> so these two unbelieving, these two men that were not God-fearing, go up to Abraham and said, God is with you. It is noticeable. Now notice this. God is willing to bless when you are in the place of blessing. Now he is hearing from God. Now he's being obedient to God. He's in the place of blessing in his life. Now God is blessing. Now he's not afraid because God is with him wherever he goes. It's almost like what the Lord told Joshua. Be strong and courageous. Do not be afraid. No one will able, be able to stand against you. No one will be able to stand against you. Be strong and courageous. Don't turn to the right or to the left. God is with you wherever you go. The same thing. God is with Abraham. And he says, now therefore swear to me by God. Take an oath in the presence of God. God is watching us right now. And may his curses, discipline be and come against you if you don't keep this, well, we're, what I'm about to ask you. He's wanting him to bring him under an obligation, a sacred obligation that he would do what he was going to say he would do. You know, this is an important lesson here for us in verse here 23, that we would keep our word, that we would be men and women that keep our word, that when we say something, we don't change. We keep our promises. We follow through. Notice that? That we don't lie, that we don't change, that we don't deviate, that we don't wander. And, and notice what he says here in verse 23, that you will not deal falsely with me, with my offspring, with my family, my posterity, but according to my kindness that I have done to you, you will also do to me and to my land in which you have dwelt. And Abraham said, I will swear. Don't deal with me in a way that is not kind, because this is the way that I've dealt with you. It is obvious that God is with you in whatever you do. What did Abraham do? He agreed. Yes, I swear to it before God that I am under obligation. I, I will treat you with kindness. Now, I want you to know something. When you keep your word, you know what it says about you? that you are a godly person. Because God keeps his word. And keeping our word, you know what it means? It means that we're becoming more like him. Because that's his nature. He doesn't change. He keeps his word. Jesus himself said in Matthew chapter 5, let your yes be yes and your no be no. For whatever is more than these is from the evil one. Here he makes a covenant. And notice what happens here. In verse 25, then Abraham rebuked Abimelech because of the well of water which Abimelech's servants had seized. But Abraham had a complaint against Abimelech. He said, well, wait a minute. Your servants took by force one of my wells of water. And that's so important when you talk about wells that provide water because water is life. So one would protect their well at all costs. And he said, Abimelech, your servants took from my servants by force some of our wells. And in verse 26, Abimelech said, I didn't know who has done this thing, and you didn't tell me, nor have I heard it until today. I had no idea that happened. So Abraham, notice what happens when Abraham finds out that Abimelech didn't know. You know what he does here? So Abraham took sheep, oxen, and gave them to Abimelech. Wait a minute. Abimelech was the one that took them. Abraham was the one that was wrong. In order to pursue peace, he did whatever he had to do. He initiated by giving whatever he had to give so that as much as possible, 
on his end, there would be peace. And you notice what he does here? Abraham took sheep and oxen, gave them to Abimelech, and the two of them made a covenant. They now made a treaty or they had peace. Not only that, it says this, and Abraham set seven ewe lambs of flock by themselves, seven female lambs. And Abimelech asked Abraham, what is the meaning of these seven ewe lambs which you have set by themselves? Why have you done this? Why have you given me additionally seven more? Seven being the number of completeness. Notice what Abraham says here, why he set these apart. And it says here, and he said, you will take these seven ewe lambs from my hand, that they may be my witness that I have dug this well. What was it? A witness. I want you to take these as a gift, as a witness, as a receipt. That we both agree that this is my well. I want there to be a witness between us. Now Abraham initiated the peace by giving in order to reconcile. You know, it teaches us that whatever the friction, whatever the tension is, you as a God-fearing man and woman, you must do whatever it takes to make the initiative to repair the damage. There was damage here. You took something from me. But the God-fearing man, you know what he does? The God-fearing woman, you know what they do? They They repair that breach of whatever has been damaged by doing whatever is necessary for there to be peace. He says, here, you can have this. We just want peace now. You know what God does? God honors the one who seeks to establish peace. God honors the one who seeks to establish peace. In Romans 12, 18, what does the Apostle Paul tell us? If it is possible as much as it depends on you, live peaceably with all men. Here, this is what he's being, a peacemaker. Therefore, he called the place that place Beersheba, because the two of them swore an oath there. What does it mean? It means well of oath, Beersheba, the place of an oath. Thus they made a covenant at Beersheba, so Abimelech rose with Phicol, the commander of his army, and returned to the land of the Philistines. And Abraham planted a Tamarus tree in Beersheba, and there called on the name of the Lord, the everlasting God. (laughs) What does he do? He finds peace, he pursues peace, he pursues reconciliation, he initiates it by giving, by reconciling, and he plants a tree there, he he plants a marker there as to what God had done for him to stay there, to dwell there, and he calls on the name of the Lord, notice here, as he worships the Lord, that's what it means, the everlasting God. Here's another Hebrew name of God, El Olam. El Olam, the everlasting God. Now, Abraham already at this point, I want you to know this, he already knew God was El Elyon, God Most High. He already had met God being God Most High or El Shaddai, God Almighty. But here he had another name to worship God. The more you learn about God, the more ways you have or reasons you have as to why you must worship him. And you know what he he calls in the name of the Lord there at Beersheba where he took an oath? The everlasting God. You know what he's saying? God, you don't change. He's the everlasting God. He makes everlasting promises. He meets his people right where they are. He meets the needs of all of his people through all eternity. He's the eternal God. That's what it means. The everlasting God, the eternal 
all-powerful God who is with you. Did you know in Scripture, he's mentioned as the everlasting God? In fact, in Isaiah chapter 40, verse 28, it would say this, have you not known, have you not heard the everlasting God? The Lord, the creator of the ends of the earth, neither faints nor grows weary. His understanding is unsearchable. He gives power to the weak. To those who have no might, he increases strength. Even youths shall faint and be weary. Even young people are going to be weary and faint and be tired. And young men shall utterly fall. But those who wait on the Lord, the Lord shall renew their strength. You know who the, who, how the Lord renews our strength? The everlasting God. He doesn't grow faint. He doesn't grow weary. They shall mount up on wings like eagles. They shall run and not grow weary. They shall walk and not faint. This is important here because Abimelech and Abraham made a covenant. You know what the covenant had that they made? It had sacrifice, had a witness, and it had promises. Sacrifice, witness, and promises. You find that all in chapter 21. But you know you also find in the covenant that God has made with us? It's called the new covenant. And there is a sacrifice in that covenant. You know who the sacrifice is? Jesus Christ. What's the witness? The witness of the Holy Spirit. And what are the promises? The promises of God's word. The promises of eternal life. We are also under a covenant as well. There at Beersheba was the place of covenant. Here at the table of communion is also the place of covenant. You know what the, the covenant that we are under? It's the new covenant where God has given us the greatest sacrifice of his son Jesus to forgive us of our sins. He's given us the greatest witness, and it's the witness of the Holy Spirit. And he's given us eternal promises from his word that give us everlasting hope and life. And that's why today we can trust in him as we approach the table of communion and say, Lord, thank you, because you truly are, surely you're the everlasting God. Let's pray.